we're leading the world in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And the problem, the reason is that delayed action, lack of a logical, feasible, evidence-based national plan that's closely implemented across the country and coordinated well and communicated well didn't happen. Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier County Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I'm the vice chair of the Collier County Democratic Party and the host of this podcast. Thank you guys for clicking on. This is part two of our interview with former deputy director of the Global AIDS Program at CDC, Mr. Gary West. In part two of our interview, we talk about the efforts by the Trump administration to discredit his own health experts. We look at the research on school children and COVID-19, and then we talk about the process that the government goes through to create a vaccine. Gary's actually a very excellent resource on this as he's been in charge of these types of vaccine trials while he was at CDC. But before we get into that, here's a quick update on things going on in the party. On August 16th, the Collier County Democratic Party will be doing a Riding with Biden caravan to show support for Vice President Joe Biden. Caravans will be happening all over the state ahead of the Democratic Party National Convention which begins on Monday, August 17th, the very next day. So please sign up on our website or on Mobilize. Again, Sunday, August 16th at 2 p.m. You can still get your Biden signs by going on our Facebook page and clicking on the link. Our volunteers will drive them out to your place and put them in your yard for you. So please sign up today for your Biden sign. And now is the time, people, to start volunteering. We have to do everything possible to make sure every person votes to elect Joe Biden. We need people who are willing to drive signs and materials out to people's homes. We need people to make phone calls. We need people to donate. We need every Democrat to get involved in this election. This is the one election, if you're ever going to choose an election to get involved in, this is the one you need to get involved in. So please sign up to volunteer today. All of the information can be found on our website, www.callyourdems.org. That's www dot collierdems.org. So now here is part two of our interview with former deputy director of the Global AIDS Program at CDC, Mr. Gary West. You know, the CDC recently was forced to uh, stand its ground on, on some recommendations for school reopenings. The Trump administration has asked hospitals to stop sending COVID data to the CDC, and the White House has astonishingly begun to attack Dr. Fauci in, in, in ways uh, and trying to, to paint his, some of his early decisions as um, kind of as a cause for some of the issues that we're having. What do you, I mean, you worked there for 35 years. I mean, what's your opinion and thoughts on just that, what's going on with what seems to be a conflict or uh, where the CDC and the White House seem to at times be at at uh, opposing ends on on certain issues. Well, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any direct knowledge about what's going on. I can kind of guess and based on what other colleagues have told me and what I've observed and read, um, you know, they just don't want to hear, (laughs) they don't want to face the reality of the pandemic is my opinion. So uh, on the guidance, the CDC's put out a lot of good guidance on COVID. I was looking at it a lot of today. I 
got a whole library of it at this point. And I looked at the school-based guidance that had been suppressed for a week or two was, was there. And it's, it's not a bad guidance. I mean, I think there's a lot of good information in there. But what it doesn't address is um, well, what happens if things go really wrong? When do you close the school? Or what is the real risk here? You know, wh what about if the children come back? Is there a likelihood that there'll be like a flare up in the community uh, of COVID, much like we see with influenza and other respiratory viruses, where young children tend to be the reservoir for those viruses. They don't always get sick from it, but they in infect the adults. There's, I used to work with daycare programs and I would see the kids just fine in the daycare and then, but some virus would spread and all the adults would get sick. So this is not unique to, to COVID. So I, I think that the, I understand the White House edited or even wrote portion of that, of that. Uh, I don't know if this, I've read this in the paper, but I think that they, they don't want to face the likelihood that the schools might have to close again if it gets too dangerous. And this idea that we're going to open everything up, we're going to go back to normal, that we are going to bring the economy back, I think is my own opinion is wishful thinking. The economy will come back when we deal effectively with the virus. If we don't deal effectively with the virus, it'll just prolong this, this period of time. And I'm sure, I don't know what, I've not talked to them, I don't know what they've told the White House, but I'm sure that's probably what they're telling them. You know, the best uh, thing we can do for the economy is to control this virus. Right. And, and uh, I mean, you worked at CDC for 35 years. You were deputy director of the Global AIDS Program. Did you ever work with Dr. Fauci? And, and... Oh, yeah. Well, he was a leader in uh, HIV AIDS related research. In fact, that's one of the areas that he worked most on and, and worked, on, worked on most early. I, I don't like we're not best friends or anything like that, but I, I was in meetings with him. I talked to him many times. He actually, uh, he and I talked together to get the, the global program on AIDS, which is now called PEPFAR, um, President's HIV AIDS Initiative. Uh, he got get it off the ground and get huge funding for it. But he's very knowledgeable. He's a very good person. He's, you know, friendly. Uh, he's honest. He'll, he'll tell you what he thinks. He's very polite, you know. He's a good guy. His his uh, standing, I think, is higher than almost anyone else in the government, and I don't think that they're going to face him very much. He's actually not the, you know, he's not a, you know, leading the effort to control the virus. That's he's a basically a researcher. He's more involved in the vaccines development and things like that. But he's just very knowledgeable. Just has common sense. Before we get to vaccines, let's start with therapeutics. I, I know that that's. Is there any information that you know about therapeutics out there or has there any? Oh, yeah. There's an unprecedented research effort underway. It's amazing. I mean, it's like the whole research industry is, is focusing on COVID at this moment. And I'm no longer directly involved since I'm retired now, but I was very much involved with this stuff when I was especially at FHI. First of all, in the therapeutics. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. And this is an area that Dr. Fauci has a lot of influence on. So and he's still working very strongly there. And I think there's actually good support from the White House on this, too. And the therapeutics, well, first of all, the clinical practices have been improving uh, steadily. And as the medical staff get more experience in dealing with COVID, and just that alone has, has to some extent lowered the death rates for those hospitalized with severe illness. I don't know by what degree, but it's definitely made things better. More recently, there's an antiviral 
uh, remdesivir, who has been found to reduce days of hospitalization by about 30 percent. The, the early research didn't find a, a benefit in reducing deaths, but if you reduce hospitalization by 30 percent, odds are that you're also reducing deaths, but that's not been documented. Maybe it will be documented later as the research is expanded. And the use, it's in widespread use now, although the supply is a little bit stressed, but it's, it's in widespread use. Then uh, some of the patients get a um, kind of an acute uh, immune response, the cytokine storm, they call these. This is beyond my knowledge of immunology, but it's, um, it's like an anti-immune response to the virus. And it, the body is actually attacked by the immune system. I'm making this very simple because I'm not an expert in this area. But there's a, a new steroid that has been, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, dexamethasone that's been studied. And it does have uh, reduces deaths, I think, by 20, 30%, as I recall. And um, so that's out there and being used now, too. And there's other therapeutics that are in various stages of evaluation and research. And I, would, I think we're going to hear more about these. So that's, that means that if you do get the virus, and you get severely ill. Remember, most people are not severely ill. In every age group, most people recover, although there can be some long, long-standing issues to the systems, different bodily systems, but most people recover. So now for those who do get severe illness, on the clinical practice and on the therapeutic side, there are some things that they can do that will increase the likelihood that they're going to get better and not die from it, although the death rate is still high. So we hope there'll be more coming, you know, to, to address the issues in that area. Let's go into the vaccine, because one of the things that I want to, you know, I think the media, in an effort to drive clicks and, and to sell papers, you, you we've seen, it feels like every month we see a headline about progress made on, on a vaccine. But I think that that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that kind of undercuts the reality, which is even though they're making progress much faster than normal, a vaccine is still a ways off. I mean, talk six, eight, ten months off at minimum um, before we can get it out there. I just was hoping that maybe you could go through what you're hearing about vaccines and then also kind of explain the process of, of creating a vaccine, because sure. I think people, you know, they feel like, oh, they've they're showing progress in this study. So in a month, we may have a vaccine when that's just not the case. Well, it won't be in a month. That's for Spencer, <laughs> or in three or six months. Now for HIV, where there's been a huge amount of research over, over many years, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV. So we hope and think that there will be a vaccine or multiple vaccines for, for COVID. But you have to remember, not every effort to develop a vaccine works. And um, in my role as uh, the senior vice president for research, I was involved more on the implementation of the, of the vaccine research than on the development. And I used to tell the staff that, you know, the development is about 5% of, of the task and the implementation of the vaccine research is about 95%. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So let me, let me, can I just go through the steps? In yeah, the vaccine please. Quickly? Yes, please. So I'll try to not, it is a little complicated and I'm, I'm going to be simplifying it. So if any of your listeners are vaccine researchers, I hope they'll forgive me here. 
But uh, first, you have to understand the virus, how it transmits, how the body's immune system responds to it or doesn't respond to it. We call that the natural history. Then based on the biology, the immunology and natural history, you identify potential vaccine candidates. And these pharmaceutical companies keep libraries of compounds that might be candidates for future vaccines. So they, they, have, they really have this down. Once you have a candidate or candidates, you study in animal models and you try to pick animals that, ha that, will have, that their immune system will have some re reasonable degree of correlation to the immune response of humans. And so they're usually picking rodents, often primates, or other animal models that they think would be correlated to the human immune response, at least to some extent. They vaccinate the animals with the virus. They, they vaccinate the animals and then they challenge the, the animal with the virus, COVID, to measure the immune response, type of response in a level of protection. So they get a candidate that looks like it's pretty good in animals. Once they uh, have a candidate, they apply to the FDA to move ahead to go into clinical trials. And then they prepare, to evaluate, uh, prepare a vaccine based on all the information they have. And they make a plan for the vaccine. And this can get quite complicated, but there could be multiple arms of the research with vaccines delivered at the same time at lower to different participants or different arms of the study with lower or higher doses, multiple doses. Then you stratify the research by levels of risk for COVID, or by gender, by ethnicity, age, or other factors. And in most vaccines, there's a series of studies that evaluate the vaccines at different doses and in different populations. And that takes a long time, years, many years in some cases. In this case, the manufacturers are going to push the studies as much as they safely can and as much as FDA will approve and think it's feasible to conduct. So, so I'm going to go over the, the usual process, but I think that they're going to short circuit these processes to get it out as early as possible. So the first step is the phase one, which is a study in a small number of recipients to essentially evaluate safety, to make sure this is not going to kill anyone, that's not going to have any really safety issues by giving the vaccine to someone, to a human, even though we might have found in animal populations it's well tolerated, it might be different in humans. These are small numbers of participants, closely monitored, and once they, they've been evaluated for a few months, then they'll move on to what they call a phase two, which is a larger study, maybe involving hundreds or even thousands, to further assess the safety and also to start to look at what we call efficacy. Can this vaccine work? And in this phase, there'll be uh, experiment, the research will have a, usually a placebo, pardon me, a placebo controlled unvaccinated group and a vaccinated experimental group. And they will vaccinate the experimental group and they'll follow both populations over time to see what the attack rates of, in this case, what COVID is. And your hope that the infection rates in the unvaccinated groups greatly exceed the infection rates in the experimental group, meaning that the vaccine actually works. Assuming it's successful, following phase two, a phase three study will be initiated to evaluate actual effectiveness of the vaccine. Is this really going to work on a large scale in human populations? It's a much larger study, 
usually involving thousands in both groups. Uh, and there's a lot of quite sophisticated statistical calculations that tell you how big the groups have to be. And you have to assume an effectiveness level that you're that you want you, that you think is feasible. And you, you can then uh, find out what number of participants you need in that population to have a chance to prove that the vaccine works. This is quite a sophisticated, detailed process, which I won't go into. So, and if they finish the phase three study, the FDA can then require further study or they could grant the vaccine formulation a license to administer the public under medical guidance. Now, in my experience, they usually had to have two phase three trials before the FDA would consider a, a licensing a vaccine. Now that might be different in this. They might be a little bit more easy to work with. And there are gonna be multiple studies. So it may be possible that some of these different studies can, can serve, uh, provide the evidence, even if there's only a single a trial done, maybe some of the other trials can, can uh, help the FDA believe that the, this, the vaccine is safe and effective. So when I worked on this, this is a very, very costly process, costing millions and millions of dollars, usually taking many years, many, many steps, many things you have to do to comply with all the FDA regulations. Um, and it, it's quite an experience to go through these. But many vaccines have been approved through the past process and licensed. Uh, there's many great vaccines out there because of this. Now, I know that they're going to go at a much faster pace with these vaccines than anything I've ever worked on or even heard of. I understand there are more than 23 COVID vaccine candidates already in clinical trials or soon to begin clinical trials. And there's many others that are not that far along, but are be also being developed. Uh, some have already completed um, phase one. At least one has completed phase two. I just saw the publication on it. And at least one is beginning to start, is going to start a phase three in July. Uh, so, so I've read. So there's four, four uh, vaccine candidates that are moving along in the research. And one thing that seems to be a common thread is that they all seem to produce antibodies in the human body that may be effective. Now, we can't, we can't know that they're effective until they finished the, the phase threes, but um, they are, the antibody that's been uh, generated in response to the vaccine looks like the type of antibody that you would get if you uh, had a natural infection. And uh, so both the kind of passive immunity and the active uh, neutralizing immunity is uh, being produced by these vaccines. I want to... Well, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, you know, you talked about all the F uh, before you move on in the process that you talk about the FDA regulations that they put in, in place and how long it takes. Um, you know, <coughs> the FDA regulations, though, you know, are a good thing, correct? I mean, they're preventing oh, yeah. they're preventing. I just want to make sure because I think what happens is, is when you're in a situation like this and people are stressed and they're, they, people go, well, why can't they just eliminate? some of these checkpoints and some of these procedures, um, you know, those regulations that, that verify that these things are safe, you know, are a good thing and that we should still go through them to make sure that the vaccine is, is safe and, and, and effective, correct? 
Absolutely. Yeah. You now, the FDA regulations, they're tough. They're well justified. You really have to have a huge amount of evidence before you go out and start immunizing hundreds, if not millions of humans. You know, to find out down the road that 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 there's a lot of people who get seriously ill from the vaccine or the vaccine doesn't work. That's not an outcome you want to have. Yeah. Not only are you not solving the original issue, but then you 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 are pr- producing a a second issue that someone has to deal with and you're undercutting people's faith in the next vaccine that comes out to to deal with that particular virus or the future virus that we haven't experienced yet. Absolutely. And there are a lot of people watching this process with precisely that concern in their mind. Now, I would say, though, that there are some there may be ways to move faster in an emergency without compromising safety and efficacy. So so I I don't think that it's required that we have to go through the exact same process that we did in the past. It may be that there are some shortcuts that don't raise any real risks. So um, so I'm, I'm not so concerned that they're trying to move fast. They in an emergency, I think that should be allowed, but they should not be in any significant way compromising safety of the participants or the people who are eventually receive the vaccine or the or the likelihood that the vaccine is going to work effectively. Right. So so moving back to the process. So you, you've gone through phase three. It's a large thousand person study of the potential vaccine and a placebo group to make sure to, to test efficacy. What happens after we get past that point? Well, in the normal process, they would go to the FDA, present all the data that is available, and the FDA would either tell them to go back and do more research or could approve the vaccine. And then the manufacturers start to develop the vaccine and there would be a program of some type to get that vaccine out to the population. Now, one thing I want to say about the COVID vaccine trials that are different than than we've had in the past, these are going to be complex trials with with many arms, I suspect, looking at elderly populations, looking at ethnicities, um, looking at populations that are not at high risk. There's going to be lots of populations that they try to get information on early on. In the past, we might have done the one trial and come back and then done other studies. I think they're going to try and do as many of these in populations that they want to reach with the vaccine eventually as, as soon as possible. So there probably are going to be multiple arms. And remember, there's, going to, there's four vaccine candidates that are ready to go, it looks like. And so there's going to be four phase threes now and probably others starting, and they'll probably have multiple arms. So this is going to be a complex operation. I hope they're all prepared, but I think they are. I've, I've heard the vaccine uh, leaders in the NIH talk about this, and I was pretty confident after I heard what they said. So the goal, and there's this thing called the White House called Project Warp Speed, which makes me a little nervous. <laughs> but uh, the goal is to have at least one safe and effective vaccine by early next year. And is that possible? Well, if you would have asked me back last December, I would say no. But actually, it could be possible. But there's another factor that may allow them to go to go faster than we do in some of the trials I worked on. For example, with HIV vaccines or other HIV treatments, if you try to study them 
the number of people who contract HIV in the United States any week, any month, or any year is very low. It's a very dangerous disease, and it's done a lot of, has had a lot of negative impact, but it's not very common, and it would take years to build up a, a study population that could ever tell you whether the vaccine works or not. There's just not enough people to ever support a finding from your research. So we would go to Africa. So where I worked, we would our trials are primarily in Africa because there was much higher incidence of HIV in Africa than there was in the United States or in almost any other country. In this case, with COVID, the disease is surging right in this country. And the ability to uh, look at attack rates in different uh, vaccine, uh, experimental or control populations is much, is much more feasible than it is with the vaccines that I've worked on. So that means that actually they, they may be able to get data more quickly on more, um, more kind of compelling data, whether it really works or not. If you have these you know, increasing incidents, you look at the epi curves for COVID, it's going straight up right now. So there's a, what, they got, what we call high incidence intensity. So that may actually, it's a terrible thing, but the silver lining is it may actually allow the research to progress more rapidly and to get a finding one way or the other more quickly. So how does, how does this get distributed? And administered. Well, I mean, that that seemed like it's one thing to create the vaccine. But, it, you know, as we have seen, as you just said, the, the curve is going straight up. And the reality is, is that we may not have something until for another five months. Um, and, you know, as you said, we had a million cases in 15 days. There's going to be a lot of people, the whole world, basically wanting uh, a vaccine. So how, how do we, how does that happen? I mean, how does it get distributed? How does it get administered? I mean, that seems like a logistical problem in and of itself that may be even greater than creating the vaccine. Well, actually, this is where I worked on a lot when I was with CDC on getting vaccines out and trying to reach high levels of immunization in different populations. Um, first of all, for this, for COVID, the government is taking the risk that that at least one or more of these vaccines is going to actually work. And they're already giving money to, and I think it'll be more than one here soon, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies to start manufacturing the vaccine now. So that when the research is done, either you throw all the vaccine away, which is not a very good outcome, costs a lot of money, uh, or you can release it right away after the FDA has granted the authority, the license to administer it to people. So they're trying to hedge their bet, which I think is, is a pretty good use of money. I, I think that this is probably right thinking at the moment, but it, it is a risk. It's a gamble that the vaccines are gonna work. And you have to say, well, this vaccine is gonna work. And it's really, you know, my experience is it's not so easy to predict. The animal studies are, are interesting, but they're not humans. And we've had a lot of sad outcomes when it worked in, in animals and not in humans. So, so that, that is still a possibility. But I think that's a reasonable thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. Now, there are many ways to, to 
distribute the vaccine. There are many outlets that you can work through. I, I used to do this all the time. But the first thing is you have priority is to who should receive the vaccine first. And this is going to give some heartburn to a lot of people. But I don't know exactly what the priorities will be, but I can guess. The first one will be medical personnel, emergency responders, people who are got to be out in the public, will be exposed to the virus. You need to have them safe and healthy so they can do their jobs. So I'm sure that'll be one of the first groups. The next group would be people at high risk of death, severe illness or death. And we've, we're getting more information on this, uh, but the profile of risk is pretty clear. Age, older you are, the risk is higher, especially as you move into your 70s and 80s. Uh, comorbidities like diabetes, um, asthma, heart disease, there's others, I think, increase your risk. Um, so those that who are perceived to be at increase of severe disease will be in the first group. Then we'll start uh, thinking about maybe communities that appear to be having um, high risk. So we know that in uh, racial and ethnic minority communities, at least some, I think several of them in the United States, there are much higher rates of severe illness and death than there is in others. That probably needs a little bit more study, but I would imagine that that population would be we, among the, the earlier ones targeted because there's a lot of uh, social disruption and you know, uh, pain and sickness and deaths occurring in those populations right now for different reasons. And then after that, depending on the supply, it can start going out to the general population and since they're talking about manufacturing billions of vac vaccine doses, then there will be, I think this will move pretty fast. And the idea of using the vaccine for uh, epidemic control is another, another thing, which we'll have to see if the epidemiological models would support that or not. But we, I wrote a paper on it myself back in, I think it was 1977 on HIV kind of thinking about using therapeutics in, in epidemic control. There are ways to think this through and there may be some uses for a vaccine that could, when you get a surge in the, in the virus, you can go in and, and immunize people like we did with smallpox where we immunized whole areas of a city or a whole city to stop it from spreading. So even that might become feasible as we get more information, we'll have to see. But I think the main thrust will be to get the public out to the priority groups and to the general population as fast as it can. There are many possible outlets. Right now, there's every drugstore seems to be able to give vaccines. There's doctor's offices or public health clinics. Uh, I think they'll be hesitant to, to set up a lot of community clinics right away because of the risk of the, um, of the, of the virus. Uh, we don't know how long it'll take to develop immunity from the vaccine, assuming the vaccine works. How long will it take before you're immune? Do you need a booster shot before you actually get immune? We don't know the, the answers to those questions. And that right. would make a big difference to how the, how the implementation program is, is constructed. Sure that the CDC has people who are really experts on this. You know, I had a lot of experience, but they have more recent experience than me. We're living in a different world now, and I think they'll, they'll have good thoughts about how to do this. We're gonna take a quick break. Please stick around.
this election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot this November, and we need your help. We cannot do many of the things we normally do this election year, but there are still many activities that are safe and can be done from home. We need volunteers to help out with things like writing postcards or making phone calls in a virtual phone bank that will help us win in November. If you have the time to help us, please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org and click on the Get Involved button and become a volunteer. With your help, we can win in November. What, what about the rest of the world? I mean, I, as you, you spoke earlier about HIV and AIDS and how you, due to, I think, a lot of things going on in the United States, we had a, low, a lower prevalence later on to be able to, to find uh, people for a vaccine study with HIV, and you guys had to move to Africa uh, where they had a higher prevalence of it. How does this work? Once we, we get a vaccine, how does it work in the rest of the world, especially in the countries that, that are lower income, lower status, don't have the infrastructure, don't have the community health systems that we have here in the, in the States? How, how does that work? Yeah. Well, first of all, they have to get access to the vaccine. So that has not been worked out yet. And um, the, my Vietnamese friends told me this morning that they're working on a vaccine too. And of course, there's very little COVID in Vietnam, so I'm not sure how to do a study. But uh, I'm expecting that we'll see the vac- the first vaccines will come out of the US or come out of the UK or maybe out of China. And um, so usually we have some kind of agreement up front about how the vaccines will be distributed across the world. They will often give like a public health price or an international price for a vaccine to try and make it affordable to uh, low-income countries. Uh, I don't, there may be uh, discussions about this already, but I haven't heard about them at the moment. Maybe too early to have those discussions. The one way the vaccine could be made available is, is the manufacturer, the pharma, Pfizer or, or whoever is, uh, Johnson & Johnson or whoever develops the vaccine, the pharmaceutical company can sell it to those countries, can set up manufacturing capabilities or may already have them in other countries and sell it to them. But it would, I guess is there might be an issue on price. So that needs to be worked out. But usually there's an agreement about how, across countries about how the vaccine will, will get out to, to multiple countries. Now, once it gets to the country, uh, you know, we have a lot of steps here, not so easy to get past, but once it gets there, some countries have really good infrastructure for vaccine immunization administration. So China, Vietnam, Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, especially in the Asian countries, the, 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 the Northern and Southeast Asian countries have good, South Korea has good system. Um, they, they're gonna do well. We can get the vaccine to them one way or the other, they're gonna immunize a high percent of their population pretty fast. As you get to Africa, kind of the other extreme, it depends which country you're talking about, because there are countries in Africa that have good vaccine infrastructure, but and others that don't. Our Central America and South America, there may be a problem with infrastructure. And so what you have to do is go in and create the infrastructure. And we used to do that. We would go and 
literally set up clinics on the street, start immunizing people. So it can be done, but uh, it needs careful thought and planning. But usually you try and work through the infrastructure of the country and hopefully they'll have a strong one and can take the lead themselves and can immunize their population. And a lot of countries can do this. There's been this it's a global immunization initiative that has been getting vaccine out, vaccines out across the world. Gavi, it's called. And they have a lot of they've done a lot of road work for getting other vaccines out. I'm assuming they, they could be a big players. Let's talk about Florida and what we're seeing here in yeah. Florida. Uh, you know, the governor kind of prematurely took a victory lap back in in uh, early May, late April and thought that he had the whole thing under control. I just I, I kind of want to get your opinion on on what happened here uh, in the state. I know that uh, Dr. Fauci uh, indicated that uh, that Florida seemed to have jumped over some of the uh, the recommendations that the CDC had put forward in terms of uh, positivity rate and and declining cases. But I just I just kind of want to get your opinion on on what you see in Florida and and what we need to do to try to get this under control or at least in a better position because i mean we're still averaging somewhere around twelve thousand new cases every day and even if that plateaus that's not a plateau that is sustainable i would think for the healthcare systems or anything else going on yeah i think the kind of first question if you if your country is uh, attacked by a novel virus respiratory virus with a heart with a high uh, infection rate uh the first question is, can you control it at all? I mean, is it just going to overwhelm everything? And because the whole population is susceptible, is it just going to spread through no matter what you do? You know, you, that's kind of the first thought you have. Because with influenza, that's kind of what it does, you know, until we have the vaccines. Now, we know now, because, you know, the team at the White House that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and many others that put together these guidelines for social distancing, wearing masks, um, washing hands. I kind of wondered, it it all seemed like good sense to me, but I kind of wondered, is this really gonna work? Uh, First of all, a lot of people aren't going to do it, but even if you do do it, does it really work well? And then Dr. Burke showed uh, a slide one day from uh, the influenza surveillance system that CDC has been running for many years, showing how Upper after they had done after they started getting this implemented in a lot of places, that the rates of upper respiratory infection had actually dropped precipitously in the United States. Now some of that was seasonal, but at the time when COVID was coming in and going up, then all of a sudden these upper respiratory rates started to drop and actually dropped way down for a while. And that was and she said this is evidence that this stuff works. That social distancing, masks, washing hands, it actually works. And, you know, logically, if it's droplet spread, if you just stay away from people with the virus, you don't spread the virus yourself because you're wearing a mask. It makes sense. So um, I was thinking, well, I I give them credit that maybe these types of controls can hold the virus off until we can can gain some ground in the research with therapeutics and uh, vaccines and so forth. But what happened is, is that people... Some places didn't implement it quickly. So Florida, my understanding of Florida is that it took a long time before they really started to seriously implement these types of measures. And even today, they don't have them fully implemented. 
Then there's, I think, a double problem in Florida that the, some of the population seems resistant to doing some of these things. I don't know if this is, this, maybe it's a bigger issue than Texas, than Florida. I'm not sure. But what has happened is they gave the virus a chance to seed the population. And this, remember, you think of, uh, so you have like uh, uh, R rate, let's say three, okay? So if you have like 10 people with an infection with an R rate of three, so they're going to maybe spread to 30 people, right? And, and on and on. But if you have a whole bunch of people, if you get 100 or 1,000 people infected and the R rate's three, it's going to exponentially increase in the population. Since the cycle is about a week to three weeks, that means every week to three weeks, you have thousands of more infected. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? It, it becomes harder and harder to control the virus if you wait. And uh, even though these uh, measures that they recommended appear to, appear to work at some level, they're not, you know, they're not perfect. If they're not perfectly implemented, there's going to be some leakage and there's going to be some problems. Now, when it, the idea of opening up the country after a, a few weeks or two months of lockdown, some parts of the country never locked down, but opening it up, then they, the White House team came out with a, a pretty rigorous uh, plan. You know, it's got to drop. You don't even start it until the incidents have dropped to a certain level. Then once it's dropped, you can start to open phase one, phase two, phase three. Well, some states just, Dr. Fauci and others just blew by these things. They, they didn't, a lot of them never got to even stage one. And so what happens, this issue about can we control a novel virus, under those circumstances, it looks like no. You know, that's what's happening now. We're, 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 uh, uh, we're leading the world in cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And the problem, the reason is that delayed action, lack of a logical, feasible, evidence-based national plan that's, that's closely implemented across the country and coordinated well and communicated well didn't happen. And so what the outcome is, is that uh, we have the situation we have today. By the way, this approach that the White House talked about and recommended for the United States was followed in countries like Italy, Spain, Germany, Vietnam, and it worked. So uh, what Florida needs to do is to put that into place as fast as possible. I mean, no bars, no large gatherings, no church sessions, no concerts. Everyone wears a mask. Wash your hands five times a day every time you go out. And maybe over time we can gain some traction against the virus. Until we get um, a vaccine, really in terms of prevention, our first hope for prevention is a vaccine. In terms of lowering the rate of death, there's some progress being made of that with uh, medical clinical care, with uh, some new therapeutics. These, I mentioned the, the steroids and more will come. So there's some hope on that end. Uh, the contact tracing that everyone talks about, you know, you can't contact trace where there's thousands right. of cases. I mean, that's just like, I did this. I used to, my wife trained contact tracers. We did it for years, both of us. Uh, we're used to like contact tracing where there's like 50 or 100 or 10. We don't work right. with thousands. You know, if you think about what has to be done, it just, 
it just gets overwhelmed. And then they have the problem of the testing results coming back a week or two weeks after uh, they got tested. And they find, that's when they find out they're positive. Well, you know, that that's just, you know, it, there are just too many cases yeah, and to I, make it work. And I want to ask moment. you something. This, this got brought up. Um, so a friend of, uh, of mine, um, actually, Linda, who, who's on, who uh, does a lot on this podcast with me, she, her uh, son ended up testing positive. Uh, this was a month ago, and, and they're fine. But um, she went and got tested. Her son's test took uh, nine days to get back. They quarantined. They shut off, and they stayed at home and didn't, and didn't go out and see anybody. But, you know, the, the thing that struck me was that once she got the positive test back, there was no information provided to her on what the steps were now that she has positive. Like they, she got tested and then it was just, they provided the test result and that was it. There was no make sure you stay home. There was no don't go out. There was no, you know, contact. There was, there was no, it seemed like there was no plan of when we get positive. And I, I'm just curious, that seems to me like something that should be part of a reopening plan that, that Absolutely. if, if, if Absolutely. we're going to reopen when people get positive, all these testing facilities are going to know that when you test someone who's positive, we're going to let them know this is what you need to do now to minimize the spread. And none of that happened. She actually had to call back the doctor or the, the physician or, or nurse, whoever it was that administered the test or who told her that her test result and ask, what is what am I supposed to do? And they didn't really have a response. And so I'm just curious, like, what is your experience with that? Is that that just seems completely counterproductive to to the whole reopening strategy? Well, just think of it this way. We know now that from the time you become ill till 10 days later, they're not even doing a test to see if you uh, still have the virus. They think by that time, the virus in terms of spreading other people is gone. So in 10 days, all the spread that your sister would do or her son would do um, to other people would have already occurred. So, so there's no, it's just a wasted amount of, just a total wasted amount of energy. Now, no one should uh, get a test and then not be told what to do. That's just an ethic, medical, that's medical ethics. And uh, regardless whether you're negative or positive, you know, if you're negative, great, keep, keep social distancing, keep wearing a mask and so forth. You can still get infected. You're just not infected now. If you're positive, then we would give them the information about how to prevent infecting other people and where to go if they get severely ill and so forth. Those are the kind of bare minimums that you would give to someone after testing. But if 10 days has already passed, then they're not going to be spreading it to other people because they almost certainly they don't have the ability to spread the, the virus anymore. They may still get sick. I mean, they may still get severely ill. Sometimes people, it takes a couple, two or three weeks from the time they develop symptoms so they get severely ill. So there should be information given them about what to do if you do become severely ill so they know what, you know, they don't sit there and can't breathe and don't know who to call or what to do. That's a, a minimum thing. Yeah, but, be, yeah but, and, but, but beyond their own personal health, I mean, from an epidemiology standpoint, 
you know, of trying to contain and, and have a community or a statewide or nationwide handle of this. I mean, well, normally what we would do, we would have a, we would have a protocol for the people who are giving the results back and that protocol would, they would do, they would go back and, and find out where the person's been, who they've been in touch with. They would have a, uh, a kind of a case definition for the, the contacts that are probably at high risk of getting infected based on the circumstances of the contact. And they would, uh, find a way to that minute, get in touch with them to see if they're sick, isolate them. If they're not sick to get them tested and see if they've got the virus in their bodies and continue the process on. So, but there would be a protocol and people would be trained on that protocol as to what to do. And, and we, we would get nervous with a lot of the infections we we're working with if people who are not trained tried to do this, you know, because it's not so hard to do, but it, you need to follow the steps or you can have bad consequences. So, um, that's not being done partly because the, the programs are in shambles because there's so many people who want testing or because the people haven't been trained. They probably would be good if they were trained, but they probably haven't been trained. And just the sheer numbers are overwhelming them. I got a, a notice from the Georgia state health department. A friend of mine sent it on to me asking to hire a thousand contact tracers. We didn't have a thousand contact tracers for syphilis in the 1970s in the United States. So that's like a huge body, a huge work, uh, workforce that they're trying to bring in. But until, and that's good, but until they get the system that with testing fixed, it won't really work. I hope it Let me ask well. you uh, one final question. And it's the one that, that's coming up here soon is the, the issue of reopening schools and the right. impact COVID has on school aged children. I just, there's so much information out there. Um, I, I think I read recently that in Israel they they reopened schools and and there was a, 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 yeah a, a, a spike that that came or a surge that came. I guess there's some question on whether or not um, the reopening of schools suggested to people that they could just kind of go full tilt back open and, and maybe it wasn't completely due to the schools. But can you just give us some information on what? Uh, the research is showing on on school age children and the impact of opening reopening schools. Yeah, well, before we would say influenza and other respiratory viruses that the reservoir in many communities is among the school age children. There's a lot of evidence for that. We don't know the situation with COVID, but when they started looking at children, there's there, by the way, there are very few studies. So that's the first thing. This has not been well studied yet. But there have been some studies and they're interesting, but there's just a few of them. So it did appear in the first looks at younger children, it looked like they seemed to not have a very high rate of COVID, even when the COVID was fairly common in the community. But that could have just been by chance. You know, who knows exactly why that could have been. Now, the study from South Korea, which is the one I, there are probably others out there that I know there are others that have the same findings, but the South Korea study. It's pretty convincing. I just read a copy of it today that the younger children under 10 tend to tend to have fairly, maybe very low rates of illness and very low capacity to infect others. That's what the South Korea, based on their observation, their study in their country. But children 10 and older were more like adults and 
could get infected and could infect others at about the same rates. Both groups tended to have quite low rates of severe illness, although there is some. There's this multi-system uh, syndrome for some children that occurs. It's rare, but it's devastating when it does occur. So there is there are some risks. So I would say that right now, uh, the South Korea study is probably the best, at least the best that I've read. The other studies are, you know, not definitive. Even the one, the study in, in Israel, uh, I don't know all the details. I haven't seen a report. I mean, I've seen a report, but I haven't seen an analysis of what actually happened. But um, I think right now we can't say that the risk is not there, that the, I think the risk is there. And one of the issues with the current version of the CDC guidelines that just came out, I think, today or yesterday, it doesn't really talk about the risk. Uh, it makes these kind of statements about low risk for younger children. And it doesn't say a lot about older children. At least when I read it, I didn't notice that. This, I didn't, maybe I missed it. I didn't see the part about older children more like adults. They just talked the risks are lower. Most people are going to be just fine, which is true. Um, and it also didn't tell the school authorities, well, what if you do all these things and then you get an epidemic what do you do? Do you close the school? It's silent on that. I think that it's, I think it's a risk that if you open the school up, I would guess that you'll probably see a surge in the virus. Um, maybe you get lucky and you won't. Maybe the one study from South Korea, which says older children can spread the virus, can become infected and spread the virus quite effectively. Uh, I'm not sure how they, they, they don't seem to have addressed that in the guidelines. Uh, I think the other stuff that's in there is pretty good, but uh, it seems to be silent on that. And I've seen other people have read it, kind of had the same, uh, and I just read it through one time. I could have right. missed something, but I, I scanned it. Actually, I just saw it about two hours ago and I was reading through it, but I didn't see any real um, clear guidance on those types of issues. So I wouldn't say, well, you can do this safely Maybe you can't do this safely. Uh, you do need to be very careful. Now, I, I agree with people under wanting to open the schools, but you have to do this in a way that uh, doesn't do harm. So you have to have certain conditions. I would say the first thing, you should have a relatively low incidence of the virus in your community. That would be the first thing I would say. Then you go through stages, kind of testing what happens. Maybe you let the the smaller, the younger children come in first, by the way, who are, don't benefit as much from the online learning as older children do. Maybe let them come in first and see how it goes. You have to protect all the staff, all the teachers, all the cafeteria workers, the maintenance workers. You have to protect everyone. And you have to think about protecting the people at home in case the kids do get infected and go back and infect their grandpa and so forth. You have to think all that through how that's going to actually work. Yeah, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm overwhelmed by the uh, by all of the um, different things that have to be uh, thought of, and the fact that I just feel like it hasn't that there hasn't been sufficient thought taken into how to do this. It's it feels as if the plan was we're going to reopen and the schools, and that's it, and just figure it out, and I and in a pandemic that seems to be not just wrong, but the exact opposite, like the worst thing you could do 
is to just do something without thinking out how are we going to handle this? And if something happens, what, what do we do when something happens? It just, it's, um, it's a stark place to be. So we'll end it there. Gary, thank you so much as always for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. I hope it's useful. So that's our show. I want to thank Gary West again for joining us. Thanks to Agent 13 for the theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 88 days left until Election Day. Set aside 15 minutes a day to help elect Joe Biden. It will really help. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.